0: All right. Today we are continuing in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you'd like to follow along, we are in Matthew chapter 22. And just to give you a heads up, the uh, scripture we're looking at today is one of those scriptures which can kind of trigger people because we're going to be talking about taxes and government a little bit. And, uh, you know, obviously those are places which uh, affected people in the time of Christ, they affect us today. And especially now, today, because we feel like government is kind of meddling a little bit more in our lives than we would like in areas of, of our freedoms or how people kind of feel like their freedoms are being impinged. There's a lot of questions about how churches should respond to that. So, we're going to look into some of these, we're going to touch on some of these a little bit today, but we're not going to make it a, a sermon on uh, current politics because I don't think that's appropriate from the pulpit. But when Jesus talks about stuff, then we will also talk about it as well. So, the last time, that we saw Jesus uh, in the parables. He, was, he had just finished telling a parable, the parable about the wedding banquet. And if you remember that the wedding banquet parable ended with uh, Jesus saying, many are called or many are invited, but few are chosen. And the Pharisees who were listening to him knew he was talking about them when he was talking about few were chosen. And the Jewish leaders then went back and they began to talk uh, to each other. The Pharisees, there's two main groups we're going to be looking at in the next couple of weeks. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. And uh, they're two different groups within Judaism in the time of Christ. Just like we have different, you know, kind of brands or, or flavors of Christianity, you had the same thing within Judaism. We'll talk more about that later. But one of the things that all the Jewish leaders at the time agreed upon was that the way one measured themselves as a true or good Israelite, at the time they were Israelites, today we would say the Jewish people, is in these three areas of faithfulness. Faithfulness to the temple, faithfulness to the land, and faithfulness to the traditions of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, it's important that you keep this in mind, because this even affects Judaism to this very day. Faithfulness to the temple, faithfulness to the land, And faithfulness to the traditions of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I think it's important as Christians for us to understand Judaism a little bit because Christianity comes out of Judaism. And on this day, in these modern times, being a a Jew, a Jewish person, is a little bit difficult because it's hard to be faithful to the temple, whatever that means—is it by going on festivals? tithing, whatever it is to the temple. It's hard to be faithful to the temple because the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. It was completely utterly demolished by the Romans, flattened and the stones pushed off Temple Mount. Completely utterly gone. So it's hard to be faithful to a temple that doesn't exist. Until 1948, there was no kingdom of Israel. There was no country of Israel. There was no nation of Israel. The land had been conquered Years before the time of Christ, by the Babylonians... Well, you had the the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom of Judah was conquered by the Babylonians. And the Jews taken into exile into Babylon. We read about this in the Old Testament. They were allowed back after 70 years. But there was never a kingdom of Israel reestablished. It was always under foreign occupation at that time. And and, and so for over 2,000 years... There was no land to be faithful to if you were Jewish. The only thing there was to be faithful to were the traditions. The traditions of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I want you to kind of try and put yourself and empathize a little bit with where where they were at at this point. There is no temple with which to express their faithfulness toward God. There is no land with which to express their faithfulness toward God. The only thing they had to define themselves as a people and to define themselves as a faithful Jew was to be faithful to the traditions of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is why for over 2,000 years as the Jewish people were scattered all over the world, it's called the diaspora, scattered all over the world, they would go into, into cities in, in Europe and even the United States and all over the world, but they would form these enclaves where they would segregate themselves. Why would they segregate themselves? Because they were trying desperately to hang on to the one thing that could continue to define them, and that was The traditions of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they cling to these things, and the Gentile world around them, the non-Jewish world around them, saw them as dressing funny, and having strange attitudes, and strange actions, and laws, and weirdness going on. And oftentimes they were ridiculed for this, and persecuted for their difference. To the credit of the Jewish people, they hung on to these traditions, because this is what they felt defined them as children of God. The chosen people. Well, in the time of Christ, things were a little bit different, but they were still very controversial and complex. In the time of Christ, you had the temple, but the temple had been radically remodeled by this guy named Herod, and he's known as Herod the Great. He's the Herod that tried to kill the baby Jesus. And Herod the Great was uh, the king of Israel it wasn't called Israel then, it was the king of Palestine, and the Jewish people did not really consider him truly Jewish, because his family converted to Judaism, now it had been several generations ago that his family converted to Judaism, but his family had no direct tie to any of the 12 tribes of Israel, so in the eyes of the Jewish leadership, this guy was not truly Jewish, and in fact didn't really consider himself truly Jewish. He had grown up in Rome and he was more Roman than anything else and he tried to bring what he felt was the civilization of Rome into this backwater province of Palestine. And so you can still see it to this day there are places that that he was an architect. He liked to build things. His greatness was that he was a good general, but his great but the more the great is that he built a lot of things. And he would name them after the Romans. Like there's a city you can go see to this day, the ruins of it called Caesarea, named after Caesar. It's right on the coast of Israel. You can visit it. It's it's very much a Roman-looking town in Israel. And he remodeled the temple. He took Temple Mount and he flattened it out to greatly expand the the space on top of the Temple Mount. And he didn't actually touch the temple, but he tried to remodel as much as he could. And he did that hoping that the people would, it would endear him to the people. But it didn't. The people still saw him as a foreigner, a foreign king, a puppet of the Roman government, and rightly so. And, uh, And they didn't really, they didn't appreciate anything that he had done for the temple, and on top of that, the Jewish leadership themselves were very much split between how they should approach the temple, because you had the, you had the, the Sadducees, they're this group that were much, were much more willing to cooperate with Rome, and, they, and sometimes you'll hear them referred to as the temple Jews, because they were the, the ones that really were w- willing to work with the Romans, with Herod, within the temple. The Pharisees, who we hear most often about in the Scripture, and the reason why we hear most often about them is because Jesus identifies his teaching most closely with the Pharisees. He, in fact, he says, what the Pharisees teach about Moses is right. Just don't do what they do. And, uh, and so he identifies with them, and that's one reason why the Pharisees are always coming after Jesus. But the Pharisees were, they, they, they had a really hard time feeling tight with the temple. They would go because they felt like, okay, according to traditions, we're supposed to. But they really did not like Herod. And then you had other groups. For example, there's a group uh, that was out in the desert. And in the 1940s, these scrolls were found. And you've probably heard of them called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls were a bunch of scriptures that had been st- uh, put in these jars and put in caves. People aren't quite sure why they did that. Some think that they were to, in order to preserve them. Some think in order to... to kind of bury used copies in a, in a respectful way. We're not sure why they buried them, but they're all over in these caves. And within the scriptures that are found, there's lots of Old Testament scriptures found. There's also a lot of writings that were written by the community themselves. Called the uh, Scholars called the Qumran community because they're not quite sure where they fit in. They, but they do know this from their writings. They thought everybody associated with the temple was a son of Satan. They considered the Sadducees to be the worst compromising sons of Satan. The Pharisees were about three-quarters compromised sons of Satan. And they they had nothing to do with the temple. They wanted nothing to do with these other groups. That's why they were out in the desert near the Dead Sea because they thought the whole thing was corrupt from top to bottom. And so within the the time of Christ, there's a lot of... There's certainly not a unified Jewish position on just about anything which is fairly common. We see that even in Christianity today, don't we? Lots of different issues out there. Not a lot of unity when it comes to how to deal with or approach these issues. So that was the deal with the temple. Then the land, well, I've already told you, in the time of Christ, the land had been under uh, foreign occupation for over 500 years. There was never really a a strong reestablishment of the kingdom of Israel. There was a time that there was this revolt, the Maccabean Revolt, And we'll talk a little bit more about it later. It was about 150 years before Christ. There was a little bit of a a time, just a short period of time, where they established a kingdom of God, which was just a tiny postage stamp-sized piece of Israel. And then that Maccabean revolt willingly decided to cooperate with the Romans when the Romans came in. And so from the Maccabees, you had a split, and they they decided the Maccabees will cooperate with Rome instead of being crushed by Rome. You had, that was the time you had the split between the Sadducees who decided to cooperate and the Pharisees that didn't want to cooperate. And the Pharisees that did not want to cooperate are the direct kind of spiritual descendants of the Maccabees. And so this meant the land, the promised land of God, had not been in the hands of the people of Israel for 500 years when Jesus was there. So this is also playing into this controversy of what does it mean to be a good Jew when you have a temple that's been built by a pagan, your country is being run by pagans, what do you lean on? What defines you? Well, just like today, tradition. Traditions define them. And this is why the Pharisees would get so angry with Jesus. He would infuriate them because they like he was going against tradition and there's only one thing that's really not in the hands of the pagans as far as the pharisees are concerned and that's the tradition the temple's compromised the land has been compromised the only thing we have is tradition and when jesus would go against tradition very boldly i might say because remember the times when you read through the sermon on the mount he would say you've heard it said and then he would quote something from the law an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, then he would redefine it. But I tell you, that was a very bold thing. He was redefining tradition. When, they, when the Pharisees got angry with him for his disciples, picking heads of grain and working on the Sabbath, and Jesus came back and said, well, you know, David ate the consecrated bread. What's the problem here? He was defying tradition. And this is why they were so angry with him. The one thing that they held on to to define themselves, Jesus was, they felt, undermining. And the people were following after Jesus. And the Pharisees were afraid that they were going to lose their identity. And so what did they want to do? Kill him. That sounds like an extreme measure, but they're like, we're going to lose everything. We've almost lost everything as it is. We need to kill this guy. And so this is the situation they're in. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to look at some of the questions that the Jewish leaders asked to Jesus. And the reason why I'm giving you all this background is because the questions and the answers, we can just read right over them and kind of skim along them as if not, without realizing what is really going on and the depth of what's taking place there. And so Jesus, first of all, gets asked a question by the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, it's a political question. Because that's where they're focused on. They're focused on being, standing against Rome. So their question is a political question. And that's the one we're going to look at today. It says this in the scripture. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him with his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a Daenerys. And he asked them, Whose portrait is this on the coin, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Now, again, at first blush, this seems a pretty straightforward question and answer, but there's a lot that's going on underneath here, right? Because there's a lot of politics going on here. There's a lot of where do you stand in your relationship with Rome? Where do you stand in your relationship with the temple? Where do you stand in your relationship with your Jewishness, Jesus? And the Pharisees come along, they ask him this question. They're politically motivated. The question is about politics. And there's this other group with them called the Herodians. And we're not quite exactly, we're not exactly sure who the Herodians were, but it seems to me they would come somehow representing the dynasty of Herod, which was in power at the time of Christ. Herod the Great had died, but his, he had four kids, that the kingdom was split into four with those kids. And so they come and they ask him this question. And the reason why they ask him this question again is to remind you is that the the Pharisees are the spiritual descendants of the Maccabees. Judas of Maccabee, he, he had led this revolt. His name is kind of cool. His name actually translates to Judas the Hammer. And, uh, and he had hammered the Romans. And uh, there was a, not the Romans, the he had hammered the Greeks. And then the, he cooperated with the Romans. But anyways, he had come, and, you know, he had reestablished something. And I told you the Pharisees that didn't want to compromise, the, the Maccabeans that didn't want to compromise, they become the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the larger group between the the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a larger group who identified with the traditional Hebraic Jews. They were not Greek, they were not Roman, they were Hebrew. And in fact, Jesus' disciples are kind of a mix of of Hebrew uh, Jews and Greek Jews. Philip, for example, is a a Greek Jew. Uh, Peter would be an example of a Hebraic Jew. And so when they come and they ask him this question, this is a question, this is a loaded question. And the Herodians are probably there because they're interested in this question too. They don't necessarily align with the, with the Pharisees. But if Jesus says, no, you should not pay taxes, that would allow the Pharisees to go, great, we're good with that. But the Herodians would go, mm-mm-mm. This is a stand against the government, and so we are going to persecute you for that. We're going to take you down. And if he says, yes, you should pay taxes, then the Herodians might go, "Mm, okay. But the Pharisees would look at the people and go, see, another compromiser, a Sadducee at heart. So after shamelessly trying to flatter Jesus into being unprepared for their question, they ask him this gotcha question. Should we pay taxes or not? And to pay taxes, one needed to have Roman currency. And Roman coins, specifically the denarius, was a silver coin. You saw a picture of it, and you'll see it again. And at the time of Jesus, the emperor was Tiberius. And on the coin, it would have his face on it. It would say Tiberius, you know, the, the son of the king. On the back was this inscription called that said Pontifus Maximus, which means high priest. As the Caesar, he was not just the ruler of Rome, but he was the high priest of the Roman gods. And this coin was so offensive to the Jews that they refused to use it. And Rome decided, okay, you can, you can make your own coins. And so the Jewish people made these copper coins that didn't have anything on it. it had shapes, but it had no one's face on it. it had no inscription on it. And that's why when they, when they come to Jesus and they say, show us this coin... It says, uh, it says, Jesus, knowing the evil intent, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. Jesus has to ask for the coin because he doesn't have one. He doesn't use this coin. And it's interesting that the people who have the coin to give it to him are the very ones trying to trap him and, and who have a problem with these coins being used. It's the Pharisees. They brought him a denarius. And then Jesus does the, the question. Whose portrait is this? Tiberius, the Caesar. Whose inscription is this? Pontifus Maximus. Caesar's, they reply. And then he says to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar, and give to God's what is God's. And in this answer, what Jesus does is he diffuses a potentially explosive situation in a couple ways. One way is that he acknowledges this role of secular government. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. He acknowledges it without endorsing it. For Jesus' government, secular government, and in this case the Roman government, was something that just is. It's not something that he ever claims is righteous. It's not something that he ever claims is, is holy or that holiness comes through it. It just is. It's there. And We'll go into that a little bit more deeply later. But you, when you read the words of Jesus, though, you'll find that he has very little to say about secular government. It's just not really on his radar. And it's not that Jesus didn't know that the Romans were in control. Of course he knew they were in control. It's just not his focus. It's not where he's putting a lot of his energy and his emotion. And it's not how he defines himself. It just simply is. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And secondly, Jesus doesn't really address the coin as being a form of idolatry. You know, when he asks, whose portrait is this? He doesn't say, whose idolatrous portrait is this? And whose pagan inscription is this? You don't see any emotion in his question. He's just, whose portrait is it? Whose inscription is it? He doesn't care. He's not getting all worked up over this being an idolatrous coin. It just is what it is. And that's basically what he says. It just is what it is. Give to Caesar what is Caesar. Give to God what is God's. And in this, he diffuses this whole gotcha question because he doesn't really say anything about the ruling government. He just says, that's what they are. Give to them what they deserve and give to God what he deserves. And he doesn't confuse the two. And if you look in the passage in Romans, Paul goes into this more deeply. And Paul goes into it deeply and without compromise. Look what he says. This is in Romans 13. Listen to these first two verses. Everyone must submit himself to governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Listen to it. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. There's no compromise in those verses, is there? It's clear what Paul is saying, and he says it very strongly. And then he says this, and and this is where some people start to to, to debate, debate with the Scripture here. For rulers hold no terror for those who do what is right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good, but if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is, why, this is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor... Than honor. Now, one of the big arguments against this passage is that some folks, well, Paul is being kind of naive. I mean, you look throughout history, there have been bad rulers, right? Who brought terror into the lives of people that really didn't do anything to deserve it. And so as Paul, are we, are we to look at this and say, well, this is a portion of Scripture that, that we're not going to really take to heart? Do we set this one aside because there has been bad rulers? I think the better way to look at it is this. Paul also sees government as something that is there by God to bring order to a fallen world. The world has fallen and it's full of sin. This is Paul's point of view. The world has fallen and it's full of sin. What is sin? Sin is essentially giving into your own selfishness. I'm going to be my own God. I'm going to do what I want to do. That was the, the Garden of Eden thing. Eat this fruit and you will become like God. It's this desire within these beings created in the image of God to be God. In fact, Mormonism teaches you do become a god. And that's one of the attractive things about Mormonism. You get to become a god of your own planet. And people are drawn to Mormonism because of this idea that you become a god. It's an old, it's an old deception that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And, and you'll find in deceptive religions today, like uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, it's old arguments just brought back around again and again and again. The theology of Jehovah's Witness goes right back to this guy named Arius back in 300 A.D. You know it's nothing new. But because but Paul's idea here is like, okay, listen, the world is fallen, and it's this chaos. So God brings this thing called common grace in the form of government that brings some order to the chaos. It doesn't make it. It doesn't make the chaos and the sin righteous. It doesn't make the chaos and the sin holy but it brings some order to it. And within this order, this, this God-given order that brings some order to chaos and sin, we are to seek first the kingdom of God. And it's within this place of seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness that we function within our faith. We have no guarantee or we have no promise from Christ that we seek first the kingdom of God within a perfectly functioning and righteous situation. There's no situation, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God as long as the playing field is fair and clear and righteous. No, that's never the expectation of Scripture. The Scripture's expectation is we have to seek righteousness within the chaos of sin. And that becomes the difficulty of faith. That becomes that place of faith that you have to walk in times and not really know what's going on or, or you, you, you feel like you're stepping into darkness because I, I don't know what next step I should take. I'm not sure how I should relate to this. It's because within the, the chaos of sin, there is order and it's within this we are to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We seek God's kingdom within this world of chaos and sin. And so Paul just says, these government, this, this, this order has been given to us by God. And remember, Paul is writing, it's, this is the letter to the Romans. This is a letter that is being sent into the belly of the beast. It's a letter that is going right into the heart of Rome. It's going right into the heart of that darkness. And yet he writes this. Was Paul naive? No. But he understood that the Christians were struggling. How do we deal with this pagan government? And he says, you, you, are, you try and be the best citizen you can be. And the only time we see any kind of explicit going against ruling authorities is when the apostles are told by the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish court, interestingly by the religious court, not to preach Jesus' name. And that's the only time that you see the apostles go, well, Decide for yourself who we're supposed to obey, God or man. But if it isn't in this place of extreme persecution that you cannot speak about the the name of Christ, this is the advice given that Paul gives to the Christians living in the belly of the beast, living in Rome, in the heart of darkness. Everyone has to submit to the governing authorities for there is no authority except what God has established. And if you think you're having a hard time with this, imagine how the Roman Christians felt when they read this for the first time. They were probably looking for rebellion in the letter to Rome. They were probably looking for a place of saying, go against, stand up and fight. God will give you victory. But historically, whenever the Jewish people tried to stand up to Rome, do you know what happened? When they decided that they were going to stand up and be counted, not by their traditions, not by the temple, but by their fight against the government. You know what happened to the Jewish people? They were slaughtered. And that's why the temple gets destroyed. In 70 A.D., 70 years after Christ, there was a rebellion led by the Jewish leadership against Rome, and the response of Rome was to utterly destroy them. Destroy their temple. Push the stones off the edge. Make sure their land was no longer ruled by anyone who even had a hint of Jewishness in them. And this is when you start seeing Jerusalem being taken over by eventually Christians and then Muslims. And on the top of Temple Mount, this to this day, is the Dome of the Rock and the thing called the Black Mosque. There is no more temple. And also, this is why the Apostle Paul, there's times in the Scripture where he says things that people have been critical about. They said, because he would tell people who were slaves, he says to the people who are slaves, don't make it your first goal to change your status in life. And then he says, if you can get your freedom, get your freedom. But he says, the point of your life isn't to change the outward uh, circumstances, but to have your heart be changed by God. So he says, if you're a slave, seek first Christ within that context. If you can get freedom, great. But that is not your first priority. And if you are a, uh, a master, you seek Christ in this place. And you think, well, Paul's compromising on this. But Paul's idea was he's not going to be able to change the levers of government, but Christ can change hearts. And if you read the book of Philemon, and I encourage you to do so this week, read the book of Philemon. Do you even know the book of Philemon? It's in the New Testament. It's only one page. It's very short. It's one of the only times in the Scriptures that we see the Apostle Paul or anybody... Writing in a way that's putting feet to his faith. He's not writing a theological tome. He's writing a slave owner on behalf of a slave named Onesimus, And basically what the book of Philemon is doing is he's saying, he's not telling the slave owner, you need to rebel against this institution of slavery, which the scripture says is evil. Okay, let's be clear about that. But he says, it's not your place. He doesn't write saying rebel. He doesn't tell Onesimus, rebel. He tells Philemon, if Christ has meant anything to you, and then he gets, Paul gets quite personal in the letter of Philemon, and if I have meant anything to you, then do me a favor and accept Onesimus as a man and a brother. So he, Paul's idea is that hearts will change. He's not worried about trying to change governments. He's trying to change hearts. Now, some might push back and say, well, what about some terrible rulers? Well, that, that caveat's not given in the Scripture. There's no except if the ruler is horrible. And Paul knows that there have been horrible rulers. He knows that. He doesn't push back on that. But I would say that in the history of Europe and the history of my own country, the United States, a lot of the terrible things that our governments have done It happened because they were enabled by Christians. We enabled it. In my own country, for example, I'll I'll pick on my own country because this is less controversial than to pick on someone else's country, but you guys know what I'm talking about too. My own country had a legacy of slavery, right? I come from a Southern Baptist background, by the way, just to let you know. I went to Southern Baptist Seminary, uh, was led to Christ through the work of Southern Baptists, I appreciate very much what Southern Baptists have done, but the truth is, in the, in the legacy of my faith, back in the 1840s, before the U.S. Civil War, there was a split within the Baptists. And you know what the split was over? Slave ownership. And you go, okay, well, that seems to make sense. Uh, it was more subtle than that. Baptists have always been very missional. We wanted to go on mission, you know, go around the world, share the gospel. It's just kind of one of those things. You know, each denomination kind of has this thing they focus on. Baptists are very missional. Go out. And the Southern, and, and the Baptists as a group said, if you are a slave owner, then you are not allowed to go be a missionary to other nations, particularly if those nations are nations that are a people who are of different color, Not to put too fine a point on it, the the, the argument was, you cannot be a missionary and go to Africa and be a, a missionary in Africa when you own Africans as slaves. You can't have it both ways. And the southern Baptists, who were more agricultural, who depended upon slavery for the agriculture, split over that. They split over whether or not you can be a missionary and be a slave owner or not. And then, of course, this snowballs into, a few decades later into the American Civil War, which is the war in which more Americans were killed than any other war the United States has ever participated in. Why? Because Christians were complicit in it. And this is a very unpopular thing to say in some circles, but it's just the history. I had to take Baptist history in the seminary. This was right out there. They didn't try and hide this. Now, the Southern Baptists, to their credit, I believe, have repented from this as much as they feel like they can they have said again and again and again over the decades this was wrong we were wrong we were wrong we were wrong we were wrong we're sorry we're sorry we're sorry they've tried to bring in other people in leadership to try and work this thing out but that's from it it was complicit there was a pretty horrible thing that happened here in germany not so long ago that had the complicit support of people who claimed to be christians so my question would be, when people say, what about horrible rulers? I would push back and say, what about the people who support them? Where would we be if Christians just made some of the simple decisions like, let's not kill each other. It doesn't matter what country you're from. It doesn't matter what, what hue of your skin might be. Let's just not kill each other. And is that such a radical idea? Isn't it funny that if I were to tell you, you know, how do you feel about cannibalism, most of you would go, ugh. Right? I hope so. (laughs) But why are we so casual about killing people? Why? So before we get too much down the road of trying to split hairs, we need to look at ourselves. And this is the same way where we're at today. I mean, obviously we live in a time right now which is very politically charged. And Jesus' response to this idea of, oh, give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God's" is I think something that we can take deeply into heart as we struggle with some of the situation that we are in and how government feels like it's meddling in our faith. And to ask yourselves, is this a place to formulate rebellion or is this a place where we walk in obedience? And there's a split in that opinion. I think all of you know that. There's a split in that opinion, but I would push back and say, look at Romans 13 carefully. Are we being forced into a place of persecution, or are we being asked to be good citizens? I guess how you decide that is going to do a lot with how you pursue the kingdom of God. Do you pursue the kingdom of God within this lunacy and understand that it's never going to be made better? I have no hope for anything great to come out of secular government. Just to make it clear, in case you're wondering where I come from on politics, I don't expect anything from secular government. I think secular government is generally, uh, you have some people that are trying to do what they think is good for the people. You have a lot of people who are in for it, just for themselves, for their own enrichment. I have no, no big expectations coming out of secular government. But I do believe that I'm to be salt and light within a fallen world. I do believe that we are to stand in a place of as much as obedience as we can without compromise. Without compromising what it means to be a Christian. Because one of the beautiful things about a Chris, being a Christian is our identity is not wrapped up in a temple. We had a group of Christians that tried to wrap it up into a temple and they built, built a, quite a large edificus and named it after Peter. But they're not, we're not wrapped up in a particular country. We're not even wrapped up within traditions. How do we identify ourselves? Through the person of Jesus Christ. That's why we become like Christ. Not like a temple, not like a particular land, not like a particular people group, nationality, or tribe. We become like Christ. And that's why it's said that in Christ, there is no male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. There is no definition that we have other than Christ. And it's in Christ we find our unity. It's in Christ we find our hope. It's in Christ we find our vision. If we look for it anywhere else, then we're going to end up walking off the path and into darkness. And I'm sad to say this, but the Christian church has a long history of splitting off and walking into darkness. The miracle of God is He keeps bringing us back. So let's consider carefully what Jesus said here when he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God's. What does that truly mean to us? How are we going to live that out? Do we walk in unity? Do we walk in hope? Do we walk in expectation of a future? Or do we submit ourselves to an argument that we're never going to find an answer to and end up dividing and walking away from each other? let's pray father god we thank you for your word and lord we thank you that your word comes at in interesting times that this is where uh, this particular scripture fell this week and uh, father just pray you give us all wisdom in this because at the end of the day the scripture says you know that this is not just a, an issue of opinion but it's also an issue of obedience in our conscience towards you help us to know how to walk in unity and love because the world is divided and it doesn't help the world that those who are to be salt and light are also divided. And so regardless of how we feel things should be presented or, or carried out, help us to find unity in you and our love in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.